Everybody okay? Um, yeah, so lots of people sick today. So y'all be praying for people who are, aren't here this morning. We have so many people out. There's a lot of sickness in the area. Um, please anoint your family. Plead the blood over them. When you're going out and about, pray for those who are sick. Pray for speedy recovery and um, that they would be healthy and well soon, okay? There's a lot going around, so let's stand together with that. So I don't know what it is about this row, but Zach and Tiffany are the only ones to brave it. So good job, guys. Way to be pioneers. Next week, it'll be full and everything else will be empty, right? I am uh, wanting to continue, if you'll allow me to dive into Ephesians 2. Those of you who may have not been here the last few weeks, we have been in a uh, book called Ephesians, and it's a very important part of Christian operation. How many of you have already seen things maybe in the book that we haven't, you've never seen before just by being here with us? One person. Well, at least, at least we're getting one. Okay, two. All right, we're, we're growing. It's spreading. Um, the, the context of Ephesians is, is not only its entirety, but it's also how Paul ends the letter. How Paul ends the letter is, is what we tend to focus on. And um, what I've found in my life is that people who have a fragmented idea or identity are often power hungry. That makes sense to you. Um, people who are always seeking positions, power, influence—you uh, know—they they go. They're the ones you see. In, that if you go to a conference and a big name speaker's up there, as soon as he steps off the stage, they're the first ones up up in his face, trying to show them how spiritual they are, and they want a positions in the church. They want everybody to see their revelations. Their influence and their authority and they push that on people because it's not enough on its own to have people be attracted to it does that make sense and so they really these types of people get really caught up in the ephesians 6 idea which is where the power of god is demonstrated over principalities and powers and darkness and they like the idea of ruling and reigning they just don't like the idea of submitting and serving Makes sense. And so fragmented identities usually come from, you know, lots of pain and brokenness, but the transference, the offset is they get power drunk. They get power hungry to offset how they really feel about themselves. So that's why a lot of times you'll see a lot of people so much focus on spiritual warfare because they're desperately trying to beat something in their life that in all reality has already been beaten, yet they can't figure out why it's still present in their circumstances. This make sense? I see a lot of heads nodding now, so I, I, I tapped on something there. Okay. Um, the Christian life should not be that way. It shouldn't take us coming up and hitting walls in order for us to realize that how we're living is wrong. Is wrong. We should look at Scripture, obey Scripture, and follow Scripture, and in that we should find the freedom and the obedience and the liberty of power in our life as we live. The fact that we come across things that are bigger than us in our life only show us that our life is not lived in such a way 
that causes those powers to be at, at bay. You with me? And if at any time in history we need the church to be the church, it's today. The powers and principalities and powers over this nation, over this region, over the world have grown exponentially. All you have to do is rewind the historical clock back to the 40s and 50s, and you're going to see that culture has absolutely massively shifted. See, it didn't shift overnight. They shift generation at a time. The reason being is because principalities work through people. Okay, this is why you can't cast them out. <laughs> they are willingly accepted by people, and then those principalities govern regions through people. Does this make sense to you? There's a difference between petty demons and principalities. Petty demons are meant to attack and aggravate you and tempt you so that you agree with them that the principality can have a seat in your mind. Okay? So it's a bunch of leaders sending the minions. The minions prep the host for the possession. And then the principality rules through people. Okay, this is why, this is why the enemy is also power drunk. He wants positions of power in church, family, and government. Because if he can rule the people in those positions, then he rules everybody else under those people. Because as much as you may not like the idea of submission, you're forced to do it every day of your life. <laughs> we just don't want to do it in the church. There's a couple of toes there I got. All right. We'll get that out of the way so that way everything else is nice and easy for the rest of the service. Yeah, Zach, you're, you're probably right. Okay. So in chapter 1, we saw that uh, Paul goes out of his way to prove to us and remind us uh, of God's eternal plan. You remember this. How powerful is that plan? It predates even our sin. That God's order and God's agenda. He goes out of his way to spend much time trying to prepare the people he's trying to war, uh, empower for warfare on where they actually seat, are seated, what they live in, what the power they're under. But in chapter 2, he takes a little bit of a, a spin off and he begins to touch what they were. And there's a reason for this. In chapter 2, he contrasts the grace and mercy of God with the tainted past that we've had Yet, yet, but he also positions us for the long-term plan of God for his entire family. So that's the, that's the context of chapter 2. Why does Paul, in the beginning part of chapter 2, go into what we were when we were already set free from it in chapter 1? Because Paul's trying to prove and show us what the powers of darkness use to operate in this life and that if we don't live in the power of where we started continually and we go back into what we were even by action, what we're doing is recreating the substructure for the principality to begin to rule again in our life. Does this make sense to you? Okay. So we first have to be conscious of our future reality. I want to say this. We have to be conscious of our future reality. We have to be conscious of what Christ did for us even before the foundation of the world, how God called us into his being. He, he uh, uh, set us free by the cross, and he has a future plan for us. We have to be conscious of those things first. If we're not conscious of those things first, then when Jesus starts showing us what we were, it will ruin us. Yeah. 
This is why Paul says this is who you are ultimately first. He lays the foundation of who we are first. You, make, you following me? And then he says, but this is what you were. So you have the internal plan of God from, from eternity backwards to the point of when you were born of God calling you. And then you have this small space of time where you're running from the God who's calling you. And then you have this space of time where you submit to that God who's calling you. And then from that point forward, you're with him in, in the future, in the, uh, in the spirit realm, seated with Christ. So you have this small space of time that Paul begins to focus on in chapter 2. And why does he do that? Because that small space of time determines the future reality that God intended. God intends a reality, but it doesn't become manifest unless you and I choose to make it so. You can't just sit there and expect God to do everything in your life. And this modern idea of identity and sonship is absolutely powerful and it's awesome and it's magnificent and it's true. Yet it requires an obedience. But the problem is, is that the modern gospel of this grace-filled life and this gift that God has given us has so removed the accountability factor from the Son of God that we feel like obedience is now legalism. And then nobody's obeying. And then what happens? When we don't obey what God has called us to do, the principality begins to seed itself in our mind and bring a deception into the church. And then the entire church begins to be led away by false teaching, even if that false teaching sounds good. You with me? All right, so bear in mind, it takes knowing the plan of God in our past and in our future, to bear under the weight of the reality of what we were. Because what we were was so hor horrific and horrendous that it would crush us if we didn't have a past and eternal hope. That's why Paul goes out of his way to say, this is who you are, this is what God intended for you, this is what you were, now this is what you need to be. Okay, chapter 2, verse 1. In past times... You were dead because you sinned and you fought against God and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. He made you alive. You were dead. You get this. You were dead, but you were walking around living life. Why? Because death isn't a state of, of being, it's a state of action. Does that make sense to you? Nature begets nature. Death begets death. Flesh begets flesh. Spirit begets spirit. These people were alive, but they were walking dead. They were spiritual zombies. So Paul doesn't bring up the past until he, brought up, he, he, he brings them into what God intends before their past. The contrast to what God intended uh, is what they become. Right, But he brings them back to what he established in this verse, that God wants you to be alive, but you were dead. If we don't understand where our sins brought us, then we're going to continue to operate in the small space in between the two realities God intended. Does this make sense? I'll hopefully make this make sense a little bit better. All right, let me say it this way. Paul begins to say and teach these people what they were without God. 
He's doing that to show them how the sins that we did in our past life empowered the principality in our mind to rule and reign over us and everybody around us. You guys understand that in a family, if one or two of the parental figures in the home are not following God and they're operating under the headship of the world, even if it's not a witchcraft-based idea, it's just the carnality of the system, the children will suffer. So through the two parents, the principality runs the home, therefore the principality runs the children. With me? I remember uh, growing up in a youth group where um, there was this young girl named Teresa. She was a really special young lady, 15 years old. She died on a mission trip. Um, but before she died on a mission trip uh, in, in South America, she, um, would, she would be at every church service. I mean, she would not miss a service. And she was the girl up front with her hands raised, tears coming down her eyes, just, just a special girl. But her parents hated God. And they did everything they possibly could to keep her from church. And so they would make this impossible list of rules and, 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 and chores. And they'd say, if you get this done, then you can go to church. And every day, somehow, she would manage to do every single one of them. It's crazy. The principality ruled that home, and she suffered under that principality, even though she had to work hard to beat it. She still was subjugated by that principality in that house as a believer. Because authority is authority in Scripture. You've got to understand, please hear me when I say this. Please remember when I say this. Your opinion doesn't trump the authority of Scripture. My opinion doesn't trump the authority of submission. In other words, because you and I may not agree to submit on something doesn't mean that makes you okay to not submit. Does that make sense? Your opinion doesn't trump submission. So she wanted to go to church. That was her opinion. But it did not trump the authority her parents had over her. Do you get that? Do you get that? See, church is a place we just go to on Sunday, and what we've decided is we're not going to be a community. We're just going to go to church because if we're a community, I actually have to rub elbows with somebody, and somebody else's opinion actually has to be over mine. And that's why most churches thrive today because it's a Sunday morning culture. We just, we just try to make the worship so awesome and the word so ear-tickling that everybody feels great when they leave, but then they have a really terrible week right after that. Because it's a attendance-based culture. It's not a relationship-based culture. Because a relationship-based culture has to bring submission to it. You can't have a relationship without submission. It's impossible. When you meet somebody new and you are establishing a friendship, there is a natural order that starts to happen within the relationship. Every time. You find out who the leaders are, the followers, the ones that are more spiritually mature, the ones that are more spiritually immature, and there's an order that's created, even without realizing it. Psychologically speaking, even in the heathenistic sense, they did studies on people where they had this wall in between two people, and two people sat on each, either side of the wall. They did not know each other. They've never met each other, and they raised the wall instantly. Boom. And people were looking each other straight in the eyes, and they measured how long it took for one person to look away versus the other person. And they began to establish different personalities on who was the more leader-dominant person by who was able to stare in people's lives the longest. Submission happens in everyday life. 
Because it's a principle of the kingdom. And the reason powers and principalities rule through people is because they have to, people have to submit to a power, one or the other. Are you following me? A principality cannot have rule in your life unless you let it. But once you let it, you submit to that power and it begins to run your realm, your house, your business, your job, your family, your church, your community. So submission is a massive part of spiritual warfare. You following me? And Paul is saying here in, in, in the times past, you submitted to sin. Because you couldn't help yourself. The nature you had inside of you was the nature of sin. Now that you have a new nature, it is an absolute rebellion against the kingdom to submit to what you were before because your nature has been changed. So if you are a new son of God and you're operating in the old nature, you're literally drinking from the cup of devils and the cup of the Lord at the same time. Right? Sin empowers the principality to bring death in your life. We can't get past chapter 2 into the rest of the part of, the, of, of, of Ephesians until we realize the danger of disobedience, the danger of the lack of submission, and the danger of sin. All of which have no power to the Son of God who chooses to obey the Lord and operate in the nature that God's given. However, what we see is that most people, because they've elevated their American idealism over the kingdom of God, they actually feel like they have rights as Christians. I, I guarantee you, there's not a person in this room that, does, that doesn't think that somewhere you think you actually have rights. And in the kingdom of God, you don't. You lost your rights when you said yes to Jesus. You have the right to obey. That's the only right you have. You have the right to serve and love one another. You don't have the right to usurp. You don't have the right to divide. You don't have the right to disagree. You have the right to act like Jesus, period. Does this make sense to you? Okay. How much division is actually called through the usurping of our rights against someone else? How much division actually happens because we usurp our rights over someone else's? But do you know the Bible says mark those that cause division among you and get them out of the church? Okay, why? Because the principality preys on division. He gets into the mindset of people. If you ever have a problem with somebody, you know why you have a problem? It's because you, it's somewhere in your life you had an unchecked thought against them. You disagreed, you didn't like the way they handled it, and you let that roll in your head. And then the principality begins to use your mind to bring division against that person based upon what you thought was right, not based upon what they did. Every discrepancy that you have with another human being starts with an unchecked thought, and it wasn't a thought of love. The disobedience to love one another can only bring future division. Period. You following me? Okay. He says... You followed the ways of the world in verse 2, and you obeyed the devil. 
He rules the world, and his spirit has power over everyone who does not obey God. Did you hear that? Yeah. See, people say, oh, this devil has no power over me. <laughs> he does if you don't obey Jesus. Well, I'm a Christian. That doesn't matter. I will prove it to you in Scripture. See, some, so many Christians get confused. Like, why is the devil attacking our house? <laughs> because you're, you're embellishing his power and his authority through your fear and your unbelief and your criticism and your anger and your division and your lust and your alcoholism and all the things that you're allowing in your life. And you want to suck on all that stuff and then tell the devil to leave when it's convenient for you. Like, oh, you know, it's affecting my kids now. So, devil, you got to get out of my house. No, no, no. The devil has right in your house because of you. The devil's in your house attacking your children because of you. Does that make sense? Now, if the devil is, if, if the parental figures in the home are operating under the headship of Jesus and the devil starts attacking the children, then you have authority to tell him to leave and he has to. But this is why God lets us hit certain battles in our life that don't move in our homes. And we wonder, what's well, not working? That, that's because there's some place in your life where there's no submission. Because the Bible doesn't change. The Bible's real. The Bible's true. The Bible says what it says. And if it's not working, it's not because the Bible's wrong. It's because somewhere in your life, your opinion has now been elevated over Scripture, and you're expecting Scripture to work in spite of the disagreement that you have with the Word of God. You would never say, I would never say, we would never say, I have a disagreement with the Word of God, but whenever we live in a way that's practically against the Word of Scripture, then we have a discrepancy against God Himself. You with me? Okay. He says, you, were, you followed the ways of the world. The NSB says, in which you formerly walked according to the course or the pattern of this age, this world, according to the prince and the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So Paul, in chapter 2, right, starts bringing up the idea of principalities before he gets to chapter 6. Why? Because he's trying to show the people of Ephesians, the, the Ephesian people, that how you live determines your ability to have a mindset and a power over the things in the air. And the devil's job, the minion demon's job, is to convince you that how you live makes no difference because of grace. <laughs> yeah. It's not how it works. In fact, grace is not an excuse because you're a sinner. Grace is the power to live a life that is holy before God. I don't know why people miss that. He says, you, you, you used to walk according to the pattern of the world. Do you understand what that means? The world has a pattern. It has a pattern. And even if you're not out there drinking and thugging and drugging, it has a pattern. Its pattern is to step on somebody else to get to where you need to be. Its pattern is to use everything around you to serve yourself. Its pattern is to put self first, even in your relationship with God. Everything is about you. Everything is about you. If there's anything room left over for the end of the day, it's for those who are closest to you, and everybody else on the periphery is just out of luck. The pattern of the world. 
He says the principality feeds on the pattern of the world. You are operating under this system. What he's saying is, is because you were operating under the system, Jesus had to come and make you free. Now that you're free, don't live under the same mindset. It's amazing to me that people don't understand that when you get born again, your brain doesn't get saved. You bring every evil thought, every pattern of the world, every selfish existence, every pattern of thinking that you had and you were into the new life. And it takes you years to unlearn that stuff. It's called renewing your mind. That's why we did the series before we got here. If we don't renew our minds, it's impossible to perceive Scripture accurately. We'll, we'll perceive Scripture through our opinion. And that's how religion is created. People characterizing God, elevating the parts of Him that they love, minimizing the parts of Him that they don't, and they start a church. He says, you, you lived this way, you walked this way according to the prince of the power of the air. And that means the principality governs the pattern of life. Unless you stop him. This makes sense to you. How does he do it? Through your opinions. Everybody thinks mind renewal is just keeping lustful thoughts out of your head. No, that's not it only. Mind renewal is coming to a point where you love your brother so much that you actually love them as much or if not more than you love yourself. And so that thought of discrepancy that you have that caused that offense that's in your brain that you're not going to tell everybody about because you're actually ashamed of it yourself, that thing has to be kicked out. Otherwise, it will grow inside of you and create a division in those around you. You think it's your opinion. God knows it's the principality finding a gateway into your mind. See, I don't have a right to force anything on you. I can show you the truth. I can live in a way that has fruit, but it's up to you to decide whether you want to pattern your life after that or not. If you don't, it's not my responsibility to be offended by that. It's my responsibility to walk with whatever maturity level you throw at me, which many times is immaturity. But if I can't, I can't use that against you. I have to choose with what you choose to walk with and walk with that, even if it causes me to have to take the lower road. Does this make sense to you? See, we're willing to walk with people as long as we're, you know, constantly in agreement. Because we use that Old Testament Bible verse, you know, how can two walk together unless they be agreed? Well, the <laughs> Jesus walked with you, and he certainly wasn't in agreement for a long time. So don't give me that. He walked with you. He's still walking with you. And I promise you there's things you're doing, I'm doing, we're all doing, thinking, living, being, that he still disagrees with. And he takes the lower road and he still walks with us. With me? How come we can't do that in our marriages? Well, my husband, what well, doesn't matter. What matters is, is why can't you walk with him even though you disagree? 
That's the real question. Well, my wife, it doesn't matter. What matters is, why can't you? Well, because they're wrong. Well, then you want to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Keep eating from it. See what, See what it did to Adam and Eve and, th and actually lie to yourself to make you think it's not going to do that to you. Make it about the knowledge of sin. Make your whole Christianity about the knowledge of somebody else's sin and they're wrong and they're this and they're that. You with me? The problem we have is that when we have disagreements in a body, God expects us to, to run with his sovereignty. He expects us to run with authority. He expects us to run with people who he's placed over us, even if we disagree. Even if they're wrong, he'll work in it. We just haven't figured that out. Because we think if the pastor's wrong, well, I can't follow him. Well, the problem is, is you're wrong all the time, and you still, man, you still demand your kids to follow you. True or not? Anybody in here ever been wrong about something? You still made your kid, you're doing it anyway, you know? Right? And you're willing to give that kind of retribution, but you're not willing to submit to the same. Because somehow once you turn 18, you don't have to submit to anybody. Because that's the American culture. I've said this before. I think I said it in the minor renewal series, but we teach these kids, submit, 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 submit. And when you turn 18, they're like, oh, you don't have to submit to anybody anymore. What do I do? Well, I don't know. Do whatever you want. They don't know what to do. <laughs> you got all this naivety and immaturity with all this power and freedom. It's bound to blow up in their face. Some of you are shaking your heads because it blew up in your face. Does this make sense? See, division is where you elevate yourself over someone else. Period. You've allowed yourself to be placed over someone else, and that's not the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ says that you place yourself under them. Why am I saying this? Because this is what the pattern of the world is operating on, and the principality and the powers of darkness operate with. Okay, we were there? You with me? All right, so disobedience. He says, this power works in the sons of disobedience. There's sons of God, and then there's sons of disobedience. Many times, people who quote themselves as sons of God are really just sons of disobedience. Because they like to claim the DNA of God on Sundays. They like to claim the theological idea that I'm saved. But throughout the week, I'm not going to really do what God's asking me to do, and I'm not going to obey him. I'm certainly not going to love people more than I love myself. Yikes. It's really quiet. How, how, let me ask you this. How much do you actually value your church family? For some of you in here, I know you, you value them absolutely to the highest degree. Other people, you're somewhere in the middle, and other people, it's just like when it's convenient, you'll show up. The problem that that creates, guys, is that there's going to be a lot of people in heaven that are in this room, and you don't know who they are. And they could be your neighbor. And you had all this time to get to know them, to love them, to serve them, to honor them, to, to walk with them. And you only chose to do it when it was convenient or when it brought you something. Are you, are you understanding me? So disobedience opens the door that was never meant to be open to a believer. 
How many of you guys know that, that when you, at some point in your life, you disobeyed something in Scripture, something God told you to do, and, you, and, and because you disobeyed, obeyed it, everything else became, just came in like a flood? Depression, unbelief, doubt. One thing, just one thing. Right? Okay, I, I, countless, I, I've, I've ministered to countless young, young men on the addiction to pornography and, and things of this nature. And they get free for a while, or, or even alcohol, or even the base level sins. And they get free for a while, and then just the temptation starts coming from without, like this, you know, go do this, or get on that website, or whatever. And, because, and it was just a small idea, more, just a small thought. But because they disobeyed God, and they chose to do that one little action as believers, all of a sudden, now they're dealing with guilt, shame, condemnation, self-hate, hopelessness, a flood of iniquity, one disobedience. Why? Because when you disobey something that God has said, what you're doing is not only harming yourself, but you're giving the principality power to come in and rule your life. And then when those people are underneath that principality and that, that subjection to that bondage and that slavery, it affects everybody around them. Their attitude's terrible. They're in self-pity. They're down. They're depressed. They don't want to come to church. They don't want to listen. They feel like they want to run away. They're more familiar with the shadows. You're trying to tell them the truth. They don't want to hear it because they don't believe it's for them. They, they don't... They, they, Everything just goes spiraling out of control. And I see that to be true. One disobedience. One. Just one. Opens a portal of darkness. I'll get there, but I think in Romans 2, Paul says, don't you know that whoever you obey, that's whose slave you are? Paul's talking to believers. He says, don't you know that whoever you obey, that's who owns you for the moment. It's not the wristband on your wrist. It's not the teaching in your, in your theological ideas. Whoever you obey, whoever you yield your members to, that's who owns you in the moment. Whether sin or righteousness. So Paul's underlying what they were so that they can see the necessity of obedience in who they are now. Does it make sense to you? Don't live like you were because you're not who you are back then. You're something different, so don't bleed the two together. You live this way. The pattern of the world, the prince of the power of the air, who now works in the sons of disobedience. Verse 3. Actually, I'll tell you what. We're actually not going to get much past verse 2 or 3. <laughs> Obedience to the powers of darkness brings a submission to those powers, just as, in, just as obedience brings the power of submission in the, in the kingdom realm. If you obey God, good things happen. If you obey darkness, bad things happen as a Christian. Does this make sense? Are you with me? Okay. So Paul's direction is on something larger than life itself. He's trying to get them to see that there's something going on out there, and it's not just about paying taxes, working your job, and trying to raise your family. Those are important, but these are important because of how it affects the spiritual reality of your life. When you go to work and you walk in with a bad attitude, you're opening yourself up for that spirit to be in to wreak itself into everybody else's life because of the choice you've made. I like the song we sing, Awake My Soul. You're commanding yourself to say, no, 
I'm not going to give in to how I feel. I'm going to make this body be what it's supposed to be. And you're going to get up and you're going to praise God. Because if you do that, then everybody around you is going to start receiving the benefit of a greater power instead of the curse of a greater power. Because both powers long for possession. The devil doesn't just want to influence you. He wants to possess you. God doesn't want to just influence you. God wants to possess you. Why? Because God made it so that we are the ones that rule this earth. And he can't do it or won't do it. And the devil can't do it without our permission. God won't come into your life without permission. That's how you got saved. Jesus, come save me. Thought you'd never ask. We control the narrative here. What operates is determined by what we choose and how we live. Not by your opinion. In fact, the biblical opinions are most, one of the most divisive things on the planet. And, and the devil knows that. And he uses these power drunk people to find these revelations. And people try to use those revelations to show everybody else where they don't have that knowledge. Look at me, I have this knowledge and you're supposed to bow and tell me how great I am. Or if they don't, then, well, they just, I just don't, you know, we, we don't get along. God did a really good service to me when I was younger. And I, he was showing me a lot of things when I was very young and immature. And I was praying one day, and he really, he spoke to my heart. And he said, you know what revelation is, Chad? Because I was getting all these revelations. I was like, man, this is powerful. And I was going out trying to tell everybody about what God was showing me. And nobody was listening. And I was like, man, what's the problem? Because I found out there's no authority in Revelation. Revelation is just yours. That's for you. Authority is different. But he said, you know what Revelation is? He says, Revelation is divine correction upon bad human thinking. And so I realized every time I had a revelation, God was just simply rebuking me with my stupidness, my I was like, oh, I was dumb, yeah. Of course, you know. And I, I, I couldn't boast on anything anymore. I couldn't boast at anything. I just could boast in him, the fact that he's loving me enough to correct me because I was thinking wrong the whole time. And now I think as I was using, trying to use revelation as a source of power over somebody, and I realized it was just, it was just for, for him slapping me in the back of the head going, no, you're wrong. Let me show you what's right. So Paul's direction is, 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 is looking here, how we live here affects that, right? The reality of how we live affects the realm of the Spirit, and it's, it's key to what he addresses in chapter 6. So this is the first time he starts rep representing powers and principalities in chapter 2, and this power of obedience is the release of the nature of God. Obedience is the surrender of our will to, to love. Obedience is the surrender of our will to love. When we choose to obey, we're surrendering our will and our opinions to something greater than ourselves, to the love of God. I, I preached, I don't know how long ago it was, but you, I, the power of obedience, it's on the website. You can go back and look. You can actually obey yourself into a greater relationship with Jesus. 
the religious spirit goes, well, you can't do that. That's legalism. No. When you obey, things open. That's just how it works. Try being a rebellious child and see how far that gets you in the relationship with your parents. Try obeying them and see how far that gets you. My kids don't know it, but the degree in which they obey in the small things determines the greater gifts I, I, I give them. And so if I start seeing on the small stuff where they're dragging their feet and like, I'm like, I'm logging all that. And like next time they ask for something big, I'm like, no. Why not? Because the last four times I asked you to do something small and put that down and quit, you didn't do it. And there's consequences. Grace does not erase consequences. Do you guys realize that? We have over-exercised certain things biblically that when we, once we're forgiven, oh, it's all gone. Now the sin is gone, the consequences remain. I had somebody not really believe me, so I put it in my book. I said, they were like, well, I don't believe in that. Well, I'm like, well, I'm like, well if, you, if you have the sin of overeating and gluttony and you gain 150 pounds and then the Holy Spirit convicts you of overeating and overdrinking, which is a New Testament sin, and then you quit and you start, you know, and you're like, oh, God, forgive me, and you feel his forgiveness, right? You don't lose that 150 pounds at the altar. If it is, if that happened, we would be the most popular church in the world. Come get, hey, man, we'll pray for you. And all of this falls off. Hallelujah. That's not how it works. Consequences to sin remain. If you live a certain way to your kids and you abuse that over time, that's how they're going to remember you because that consequence is going to stay in their life and it's going to take years to heal that. You can get forgiven. And I think we, over we overvalue that forgiveness sometimes, though we should value it. But we shouldn't overvalue it to the place where we say, well, I can just go do this and then say I'm sorry. Because there's consequences, there's ripple effects, there's principalities that begin to get into the children's mind because of the parents' sin. It took me years, years to actually believe in a father called Abba and be okay with that. Because mine left when I was six. And the idea I knew of God was somebody would leave you whenever it got hard. God's your father. Well, I don't want him. Why? Because somebody else's sin and that principality of the authority of their life affected me mentally. And the consequence of somebody else's sin followed me into life. And I had to come into healing with Jesus just to get that corrected. Right? This is why I told myself, even at the age of six, whenever I get married, I'm never getting divorced. A child at six years old should not have to think such thoughts. But I was forced to fight battles before I was ready because of somebody else's opinion. You with me? See, the power of obedience releases the nature of God. It's surrender to the will of God and to the love of God. I've had people who've come to me before and say, I'm, I'm stuck, I don't know what to do. And I'm like, well, what's, the, what's, what's God told you to do last that you haven't done? And they'll be like, oh, well, it's this, and well, it's not that big of a deal. I'm like, no, no, it's a huge deal. Go do that. 
go do what he told you to do last and see what happens. And then like two weeks later, they, I'm like, what's going on? I'm like, man, everything's changed. Like I feel God's presence now and like everything's lifted and so I feel so much better. And it's like, see, that one little thing was holding everything up. Why? Because the devil wants you to undermine the widow's might and he wants you to overvalue the place of the Pharisee. You don't get to great places in God without investing in the small things first. Jesus says, if you're faithful in that which is least, what? I'll give you more. But nobody wants the least. Why? Because nobody sees you doing those things. And if you've got a discrepancy with power, you're not going to do those small things because you don't want to submit long enough to actually have the position you desire. It's not wrong to desire the position. It's just wrong to go about it the wrong way. You with me? Ephesians 5, 6. I'm going to jump off of Ephesians 2 here because we've got to jump ahead to see where Paul's going. And we're going to have to go to some other places that are in Scripture to be able to contextualize this. But Ephesians 5, 6, it says, Let no one deceive you with empty words or false teaching. Right? Because of this, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So Paul in, in chapter 5 references the same sons of obedience that the powers of darkness are operating in in chapter 2. And how does, the, how does the, uh, the sons of disobedience, the principality, exercise its power over that but by false ideas of who God is? Empty words. That means be false teaching. Um, uh, false ideas of who God is, who the order of Scripture is, who your neighbor is, who yourself are. False ideas of everything around that's in your life. Ideas that you've come up with that you think are yours but are wrong. This is how... The wrath of God comes upon those people. Why? Because our opinion, when it clashes with the will and the structure of God, brings forth his wrath. I had somebody recently who's really into this whole, you know, secret place, relationship, lovey-dovey, Abba, say that wrath, the wrath of God's no longer a reality. And I just chuckled and I was like, well, you don't know Father very well because if you come in and screw with my family, you're going to receive my wrath. Now, wrath may not be there for the family, but it is there for anybody who affects the family. Does this make sense? Does this make sense? Are you with me? So make sure you're not affecting the family. Like, well, I'll go to church. I'm a Christian. That doesn't, I'm not affecting the family. No, because you're a Christian, because you go to church, you're probably affecting the family. It's just how it is. It's up to you. If I bring division against you as a son or daughter of God, then God's going to not be happy with me. If people don't submit to the authorities that God's established, things aren't going to work in their life. The most, dis the most unsubmissive people I've ever met are the people who demand everybody else to submit to them. It's weird. Well, they believe in it. They just don't believe in giving it. They only believe in receiving it. It's, it's hard. It's hard. It's hard for me even to say this because I didn't, ask, I didn't really ask to be here. I, I did not ever, like... This wasn't my idea. <laughs> I'm a loner by nature. The fact that I love people now is a miracle. Literally. I mean, literally a miracle, guys. I, I mean, I can tell you there's a season in my life, I literally said it out loud. People are nothing but opinions and armpits, and I want nothing to do with either one of them. 
That's all they are. That's all I saw people as, opinions and armpits. Get them away from me. I want nothing to do with them. All they do is screw with my, my life. How selfish. How selfish that was. The prince works through the sons of disobedience. People are key to both realms and their ability to rule effectively. People are key. If we think that the principality is not seeking out people in this room to bring the next division to this church, then you're sadly mistaken. Somebody's mind is going to be open somewhere to some disappointment, discrepancy, offense, disagreement, uh, whatever it might be, so that the powers of the air can get in and cause division. I've watched it my whole life. It happens, and over dumb things. Verse 3 says, We were also once ruled by selfish desires of our bodies and our minds. Ephesians 2.3 We had made God angry, and we were going to be punished like everyone else. The NSB says, among them too, we all used to live in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind. Uh, we were by nature children of wrath, even as everybody else was. He said, by nature, we were the children of wrath. We indulged life on our opinions, our lusts, our wants, our thoughts, our minds. Any passing little thing that went through our head, we went after it. And it's the same thing with many modern believers today. The slightest little offense runs through their brain. They just they run through it. The slightest little fear comes in their head about what God's not going to do or how he's not going to provide. They just run with it. People are dominated by their thinking because that's how the principality dominates people. You with me? He makes it clear that principalities feed off those that live according to the flesh and the desires of the mind. The nature of the flesh is against the nature of the spirit. You with me? So one who indulges in the nature of the flesh then tries to rebuke away the demonic will find themselves defeated. People come to me all the time. Why isn't it working? Because your life's a wreck. Your mind's a wreck. 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4 says... See that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. God's divine power has given us everything for life and godliness, which means if we're not living in it, it's not his fault. True or not? Okay? Through the knowledge of him who's called us by his own glory and excellence. The last part of, of four says, For by these he has granted to us his magnificent promises, so that by them you would become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. What does it say? That we were by nature, well, we're in the wrong one. Okay, it says here that we would become partakers of the divine nature. Second Peter. You with me? Why should we become partakers of the divine nature? Because the divine nature is the only nature the principality can, can't dominate. It's period. He can't dominate the divine nature. He couldn't dominate Jesus. He left for a more opportune time. He tried to get in. He couldn't do it. So when you can't get to the, to the man, you get to the people around the man. Now what they, go look at what the enemy did and how he attacked Jesus. If he couldn't get to Jesus through the base level lust temptations, then what did he do? He got to him by his people around him. 
So much so that he infilled Peter, and Jesus turns around and says, he doesn't call him by his name. He says, Satan, get away from me. Get where you belong, behind me. See, because if the devil can't get you, he's going to get the people around you. Why? Because if he can get the people around you, he can possibly get to your actions and offenses through the people that are around you. So you may be staying away from the alcohol and lust and all that kind of stuff and have this rejoicing and that you're not those things anymore. But if you have people around you who are constantly pulling out of you the offense, the disagreements, the discrepancies, the childlikeness, the immaturity, then what the devil's trying to do is like, well, I can't get you with the base elements anymore. I'm just going to get you with the divisive elements. Demanding your way because you didn't get what you wanted. Making other people suffer because you didn't, they didn't do what you wanted them to do. <laughs> this is like grown-up three-year-olds. I mean, I, I scratch my head sometimes and go, are you kidding me? This is what we're dealing with here? It's like, this is, we had to have a meeting about this, and this is just somebody throwing a temper tantrum. What in the world? Don't you understand that you're being manipulated by a principality to bring division? Because if you can't, see, we, we chalk up Christianity as long as I'm not doing all those bad things anymore. No, if you're dividing the house of God, that's more dangerous than anything else. Because your bad things that you used to do, they're only going to kill you and affect everybody else. But division will actually break the house of God. And Jesus says a divided kingdom cannot stand. This is why Titus tells us, get them out of the church. People are causing division. Get them out. I don't care how much you need them. Get them out. Like, there's even more. I mean, like, I don't agree with homosexuality, but there's more scriptural reference to work with those people than there is people who divide who call themselves Christians. You ever had those people you've seen in other churches? They parking lot discrepancies. <laughs> Well, I just disagree with that. The problem I have with that is that God's sovereignty is awesome. Think about it. That means he's all-powerful. He, he allows things to happen. Which means, if you disagree, how come he didn't make you the pastor? Like, if he really wanted your opinion to be that well-known, he would have put you there instead of somebody else. Well, that's just wrong. Saul was wrong too, but David submitted, didn't he? Yep. Yeah. See, it's not about the wrong. It's about the character of the heart of the person who's the follower. We don't like that. See, the lower class devils, their job is to affect, afflict, to tempt, so that the principality can possess. Do you know fear is a stronghold from the principality? Unbelief is a stronghold for the principality. And while people who are Christians who are in fear and unbelief look down their noses at the homosexual, they are the ones who are causing a big damage in their own families and churches and communities. Because fear is the opposite of faith. Faith is the only thing you can use to please God. You understand what I'm saying here? Okay, so why are we talking about this? Because I'm rambling? No, because Paul's trying to show them you're going to be useless in the war if you keep living and indulging yourself in the things that you used to be. 
You've got to understand that what happens in your mind, these selfish, indulgent pleasures that you might think are okay for you are actually working against your greater good. You've been called into a kingdom. A kingdom is not a democracy. You don't get to vote Jesus in. He is a king. It's his way or the highway. The only good part about this king is that he'll walk your highway for a while because he loves you. But at some point, he won't walk it anymore. It's going, he's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. There is no fairness in that. He will beat your opinion out of you. <laughs> well, I don't agree with that. Well, the Bible says that Jesus says there's going to be people who get there that are beaten with some with few stripes and some with many. My goal is to have none. That's what I want. Because I'm telling you, when God gets a hold of the scruff of my neck down here, it's never fun. I can only imagine what it's going to be like when I'm there. You with me? So salvation brings the exchange of nature. So if you find yourself doing these things that are absolutely horrible constantly in perpetuity, you have to actually investigate and analyze yourself to see whether you're truly in the faith. Guys, I'm telling you this. I, I, I'm honest with I'm honest with myself. When I, especially when I go preach other places and I see where the church is today, I, I, I promise you, there's a large percentage of believers in the church today that are not saved. They think they are because they've had an experience with God. The problem with that is that the Bible says that the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. Because they felt His presence, they automatically feel like they're His son. No. You know you're a son when you organically obey the things that you used to have to force yourself to do. The nature is different. See, I don't have to like, you know, like try to stay away from pornography now. I don't want it in my life. I don't want anything to do with it. Like I don't I want it, I don't want it in my life. I don't want it in my family. I don't want it in my in my relationship with my God. I don't desire it, and I don't have to sit there and go, I hope I don't fall into pornography today. I'm not trying to beat alcoholism. I'm not trying to beat those base nature lusts in my life. Why? Because I don't want them. And to obey not doing them is absolutely easy, not legalism. Because there's no desire for them. Because my nature has changed. If you wash a pig with rain and water and soap, it's going to go right back to the mud because that's what it is. It's a pig. But if the nature is changed into a sheep, it will naturally avoid the pig pen. Does this make sense to you? And now there's so many people who walk so many years in what they call Christianity, but they're fighting base elemental lustful sins, discrepancies of, 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 of division and all these other things, and their lives are a mess. And they're keeping themselves from a true nature change because of the pride in their life that tells them, well, I've had a touch from the Lord. Well, so did the devil. First John says this. He says, if we say that we have fellowship with him, in verse, chapter 1, verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with Jesus, which is claiming to be a Christian, and we walk or live in darkness, we lie and we do not practice or walk out Truth, and that's Jesus. And who's the father of lies? The devil. 
We lie. He says, if you're saying your relationship with Jesus, but you're living in darkness, you're of your father, the devil. The old nature is the nature of the devil. The devil's a liar. He has been from the beginning. The prince of the power of the air loves the nature of, of the old man. Within the Adamic nature is all the complexity that hell needs to be able to completely squander life itself. In 1 John 3, 6, it says, The one who practices sin, that word practice means habitually, continually lives in, sin is of the devil. For the devil sinned from the beginning. And the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. If we are reviving the things that Jesus died to destroy, you will have an ought with God and you'll have a unity with hell. And then when you try to get hell to get out of your life, he will not obey you. So much of modern American Christianity is just this act of getting saved. And from that point on, you just come to church and that's what you do. That's so false. And then good churches are the ones who help you through your problems. You know what they try to do? They try to basically re-instruct the Adamic nature and call it success. Because every week, you're dealing with the same sin over and over and over again. And if you can get the Adamic nature looking and obeying right, then you've achieved something. No, all you've done is put lipstick on a pig. Because I can show you that there are Muslims and Buddhists in the world who are more holy than most Christians. They won't touch alcohol. They won't touch those things. They won't touch the base elements of life. But they're going to hell. They're deceived. Because we've lowered the definition of Christianity into no longer thugging and drugging and living a certain way, but yet we indulge in every wind that passes through our mind, every deception, every offense, every judgment, every bitterness, every fear, every unbelief, every doubt. No matter how much God's done for us, and, and, and we get into our little church groups, and if somebody doesn't do things the way we want or whatever it might be, then we get mad at them and we make them suffer and we, dis, we disassociate ourselves from them. Instead of trusting God. If Christ is attempting to destroy the work of sin in your life and you keep rebuilding it, who are you working for? See, we have to touch this because if I start telling you the authority of chapter 6, when we finally get there and yet you're still living under the powers of the age, I'm doing you a disservice. I'm telling you that you can go out and challenge all these things and live however you want and treat your wife however you want and treat your children however you want and treat your husband however you want and that, that this thing has to listen to you. No, if you are listening to it in your own head, then there's no way it's going to listen to you when it comes out of your mouth. Why do you think chapter 5 and 6 are about marital relationships? <laughs> because that's the greatest place of influence that the principality actually has that's why if you can destroy the family structure you can destroy an entire generation why because spiritual warfare has more to do with how you treat your wife and your children than it does with you stomping and screaming and shaking your fist under some music at the devil 
People singing that he's under their feet while he's completely entrenched in their head. Does this make sense to you? The practical reality of Ephesians is how it incorporates in how you live and treat people. I know people who are so spiritual, but they treat people like garbage. They're snooty and defensive and they're, they're not submissive. They don't, there's not a gentleness to their spirit. The, mo the moment you begin to talk about something, they, as soon as they start disagreeing, they shut off. Whoop, they just, they're done. It's like, I'm trying to help you. But you refuse to see anything other than your own opinion, which means you're only going to rise to the level you've already achieved. When you live by the base of your opinion, guess what? You've reached your ceiling. Yeah, you may be confident in where you're at. You maybe will have a track record of experiences that lead you up to that point that give you that confidence. But the problem is, is you're trying to grow. And if you're trying to grow, you can't be the, own de the definition. The Bible says this, whoever compares himself among him by himself is unwise. It means if you go back and like, well, I'm not like I was 10 years ago. I'm not like what I was five years ago. That's not the pattern. <laughs> That's not the standard. Where you were is not the standard. Jesus is and always will be the standard by which we will be judged. <laughs> not my opinion, not your opinion, his life nature. You know what made him the most attractive to people was the fact that he was able to walk and live life and love people he disagreed with. <sighs> and as soon as we have a discrepancy in the church, we want to just create our little factions. Galatians chapter 5, I'm going to try to hurry. Verse 17, I'm going to outline to you what Paul talks about the, the issues of the flesh are. He says, the flesh sets its desire against the spirit. If you begin to live a week in the flesh, two weeks in the flesh, guess what? When you finally start to try to live in the spirit again, it's going to be extremely difficult. These things are opposed to one another so that you can't do the things that you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. What does that mean? It means you're not under the law of sin. You're not under the law of the things that are oppressing your flesh. You're living by a different spirit. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, which are immorality. What does that mean? It means sexual sin, adultery, fornication, pornography, etc., this is a work of the flesh, sex outside of marriage. Do you know how many churches are in this town that have so many people sleeping together and yet coming to church on Sunday mornings? Ridiculous. And they wonder why their life is a mess. Because sin will give you an immediate gratification and holds you as a slave for the rest of your life. And then and when you finally do try to find that man or woman that you think is right for you, you'll bring all your garbage into it and ruin the future relationship that was a possible reality for you. Every person who's married is shaking their head. Because when you marry somebody, you inherit the good, bad, and the ugly. It's the same thing when somebody comes through the doors of that church and wants to be a part of this family. You inherit their garbage and their blessings. You better be able to walk with both. Okay? Uncleanness, what does that mean? Perversion, filthiness, filthy thinking, sensuality, living by the senses, living by how I feel. Why do we get in trouble? Because somebody manipulates our feelings. 
Why are we offended? Because someone manipulated our feelings, which makes you manipulable. Tell me how in control you actually are. If someone can, listen, if somebody can offend you, anybody who's ever offended you, all you've proven is they have more authority over you than you than you have over them. They have more authority over you than you have over them. Because they were able to manipulate you. My Bible says, great peace have they that love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Why? Because I learned my life by the word of God, not the opinions of men. See? He says, what else? Sensuality. This means disregarding sexual restraint. The disregard for rules and laws. Unsubmissive. Idolatry, which is image worship, whether of idols or men. Sorcery, what is that? Witchcraft, drug use. The word comes from pharmakia, the overuse of drugs, even if they're prescribed by a doctor. <laughs> I'm not saying that if you have a major surgery that you shouldn't take a couple pain medications to get through it, but you should not have to be dependent upon them. I've had a few. I took them for the first night. After that, I chucked them in the garbage, and I got on Tylenol and ibuprofen, and I just pushed through it. Did it? Was it hard? I didn't like it. But I don't want to be under the subjection of having my mind re removed from me. My mind is where the enemy accesses my life, and I want to be in control of my mind. That's why I'm completely against any kind of drug use. Because it removes you from the state of being that God created you with. What's the next one? Where are we at? Hatred. All right. Hostility to a brother. Strife. Arguing. Contention. Quarreling with brothers or sisters. Jealousy. Thoughts and feelings of fear and insecurity concerning the possessions of others. Outbursts of anger. It's pretty self-explanatory. What does that show? A lack of what? Self-control, which is a fruit of the spirit. Disputes or selfish ambition. Dissensions, which is disunity. Factions, division, self-preference over another. Envying, drunkenness, intoxication. Carousing, which is wild parties, orgies, partying. Things of like, and I warn you, just if I forewarned you before, those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. How many Christian people do you know that say they're saved and they're doing these things week in, week out, yet they think they're going to heaven? Because they had an experience. There's a difference between an experience and an encounter. An encounter changes you. And an experience is meant to draw you to change. You with me? He says, They will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no legalism. <laughs> Why? Because when you're operating that way, it's not hard to be able to be in those because you have a different nature. Those who belong to Christ, verse 24, 
have crucified the flesh and its desires. You with me? Yeah. Romans 6.16, I got the verse wrong earlier. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to something as slaves, or someone as slaves for obedience, you're the slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness. Again, the sons of disobedience, the sons of obedience. When you submit yourself to something, whether obeying sin or obeying righteousness, the key is the obedience. Every act of rebellion against God is an, is an act of obedience to hell. Period. Every act of rebellion against God is an obedience to hell. Does this make sense to you? Yeah. Why is this important? You're harping against sin. I am, because it completely destroys the life nature that Jesus gave you. We have to begin to understand that this small space in time between the two realities that Paul shows us who we are has got to be lived as Christ lived. First John says, let everyone that names the name of Christ live just as Christ lived. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord and don't do what I'm telling you to do? Luke 6, 46. Why do you call me your Savior and you don't obey me? Why? Because the power is in the obedience. John 15, 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, even as I kept my Father's commandments. Obey me. John 14, 15. If you love me, do what I'm asking you to do. See, so many people will hear this message and go, well, that's just a bunch of legalism, brother. No, it's the nature of Christ who will just naturally do what they're supposed to do because they love God. The imposter will try to obey their way into relationship. A son obeys because they have the relationship that he has given them. So people who hear these verses and think it's legalism, I wonder if you've not got a fragmented identity and understanding of Abba and the new nature. See, Christianity is so much more than you getting free from your alcoholism and drugs. And so many churches do that and celebrate that, and I'm fine with that. But do you realize that is like just step one? But they stay there. That's, that's where they stay. No, that's when the work actually begins. Oh, I'm not what I once was. Praise God. Are you what you're supposed to be? See, that happened so that you can go forward into this. Not so that you could sit there and rejoice and like, I'm free from sin now and I can look down my nose at everybody else who isn't. With me? It's Matthew 7, 24. Jesus says, those who hear the sayings of mine and do them. Whoever hears the sayings of mine and does them. Did you hear that? Jesus says, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them. I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. You guys know the rest of the story, right? Both houses get a storm. What's the difference between the two? Oh, they built on the rock. No, no, no. The difference between the two is both heard, one obeyed. You with me? 
Jesus tells another story. Man had two sons. Go plow the field. The first one said yes and didn't do it. Goes to the second one. Go plow the field. He said no. And he went and did it. Which one obeyed? The one who did it. Praise God, we're free from base lust addictions, if you are. However, that does not mean you're free from the influence of principalities in your mind. And that's exactly the devil's job, is to reduce Christianity so much so that it's just about drugs and alcohol and sex and not doing those things anymore. And then he gets to run rampant through your head, through your opinions, your divisions, your discrepancies, breaking your own marriage apart, you know, all this other stuff that you allow in your head, the fear and the doubt and the unbelief. If he can keep you from the base level sins yet still have access to you through the entire church through fear and unbelief, then he'll let you quit these things so he can divide the church on a greater reality. The Adamic nature obeys to become. The son obeys because of who they already are. You with, you with me? Jesus says, what are my commandments? Love one another. You can't do that with your opinion. In fact, in my life, it's proven 100% of the time I have to let go of my opinion in order to be able to love. <laughs> I've walked with so many people I've disagreed with over the last 25 years. It doesn't mean I lowered my standards. It just means I just decided they weren't going to raise theirs, so I just walked with them. And as they destroyed their life, I was there to help them pick up the pieces. Because, see, your opinion takes time to see the fruit of it. If you live your, your opinion the next 15 years, you're going to see whether it actually works or not. The problem is, if it doesn't work, you've lost 15 years. And the older you get, you realize how valuable 15 years are. See, praying against disunity in the church while harboring unforgiveness renders your prayers useless. There are people in this room that have issues with each other. You just won't talk about them. And so then if I say, hey, we need to pray against disunity because I'm starting to see it break the body. We can pray, but guess what? The principality is like, you can pray against me all you want. I've got entrance in that head and that head and that head and that head you can't cast me out because that unforgiveness in their mind is invited and your prayer cannot control their will do you see how it's dangerous to have this self-elevated idea and to usurp that over everybody else Men become the minions of hell when they choose to live in the nature that Christ died to crucify. Men become, and ladies too, the minions of hell when they choose to live in the nature that Christ died to crucify. Ladies, you realize if you're tearing your own house down, you're working against the kingdom of God? Well, my husband, no, no, no. That's God's son. Let's get it straight. He's not your husband because you won't be married in heaven. Who is he? He's God's son. 
You want to treat him like garbage, you're treating God like garbage. Men, same thing. It's not your wife, it's God's daughter. You treat my daughter like garbage, you and I are not going to have a very good relationship. <clears throat> See, confusion sets in when Christians think that because they believe the right things and that they use Jesus' name, that they're supposed to win every battle every time they're attacked. When many times the attack is present just because of how they're living. How we live determines our ability to war. You know why some people can lay hands on you, get you free instantly from where you're at? Because they don't submit to the thing you're submitting to. They, they actually have authority over it. Because in their life, they're not living the way you're living, so therefore that thing inside of you has to submit to something that's bigger than it, and it happens to be in someone else when it should be in you. See, you should be living in such a way where you're setting other people free, not living in such a way where you have to have somebody else to set you free. Well, the truth sets me free. Well, where is the truth? He's in me. He's in you. He's supposed to be. Well, Jesus is the truth. Yeah, but where is he? He's in us. So the truth coming out of somebody else's mouth is designed to set you free from the garbage you're submitting to that Paul says you need to stay away from. Why is Paul bringing up their past? To show them how detrimental it was in separating them from God. And they don't need to live this way anymore. So that when they get to the war, they're not already a prisoner of war before they even begin. So many people walk into spiritual warfare already bound by the thing they're trying to fight. Listen, let me give you a bit of advice for your family. Instead of going to war for your husband and your wife, spiritually speaking, or your kids... Try actually serving and loving them first. <laughs> I'm going to take authority over that demon over my husband. Now, why don't you try submitting and, and, and surrendering and serving and see what that does? See, because it's easy to say, well, I'm just going to you know, not have to do my part and, and submit myself to all that. I'm just going to deal with it up here. No, that's not how it works. If that's how it works, Jesus could have just waved his little wand over us and then caused all the demons to leave, and then we would have been set free without the cross. He never would have had to come. He could have just done spiritual warfare from heaven. True or not? He had to come live a specific kind of life to gain a specific kind of authority over specific things. And then we reap the benefit of that. He served us and loved us, and that broke the principality in our minds. You know what the best way to get somebody on your side of your opinion is? Don't enforce it. Just begin to love them and serve them. And eventually what's going to happen is, is if you are right, they will come around through your love and service, not your antagonism and force. Yeah. Yeah. So some of y'all are like, yeah, this makes a lot of sense. And you're going to try to practice it tomorrow. And you're going to be like, this all blew up my face. Yeah. You know why? Because the moment you start trying to do something that actually works, the principality is going to hammer you. Well, I tried to serve my husband. He was just a rear end all week. All the more reason that you realize that you're not where you need to be in Christ and you need to love him more. See, if you actually were like Jesus, you wouldn't care. It wouldn't, it wouldn't move you. See, we think we're way more spiritual than what we really are. If somebody or something is moving you in your life, 
It means you're manipulable. You need to get to the point where the only thing that moves you is the Holy Spirit. And he will never move you in a place to usurp yourself over someone else. He will always whisper in your ear, love them and serve them. But I don't want to. It's because in that area of your life, you're not like me. You can stand. I apologize for going wrong long. I didn't want to just create a part two next week of verse three. <laughs> I just want to take a second and deal with one thing and pray. I feel, and I'm not going to make you come up here because I don't feel like right now that that's necessary, but there's some people in this room that think you're safe because of experiences you've had with God. God's touched you at some point in your life, but yet in your life you are continually and habitually held back by demonic principalities, and you're wondering why it's not working. And maybe you've never even thought that maybe I'm not born again. Paul tells the Corinthians, he says, you need to examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. And the next verse, he says, but you can be rest assured that we are. And he's not talking about the people he's talking about. What they were doing is they were challenging Paul's authority. And he says, no, we are in the faith. And I'm asking you, are you? And it may require you to lay down your pride because there's maybe things that you haven't beaten. There's maybe things that you haven't just, you know, dealt with in your life. I know, listen, I want to be clear. I'm not talking about you, somebody in here who does love God and who messes up every once in a while. And hopefully it's not even happening on the base element issues. But what I'm saying is, is that if that is, that's something that's totally different. If you are, the Bible is specific on that. In 1 John, it talks about habitual, repetitive sin. You're going back to it and 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 back to it. And And you can't beat it. Maybe you're surviving on a touch when you should be surviving on a relationship. So if that's you, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or anything else. I'm just going to ask you to agree in your heart as I pray this prayer. And you deal with God on your own. You say, Father... I thank you for your son, Jesus. And I'm no longer trying to make a deal with you. My freedom is not about me being free from this. My freedom has everything to do with you getting what you died to receive in me. So, Father, I'm sorry for trampling under my feet the blood of the cross. And I ask you to apply the blood to my life, not so that I can be free but so that you can have me whom you died to save. Because this is not about me. And coming into your kingdom is not about me. It's about me submitting to what you want. Because Revelation 4.11 says, we were created for his pleasure and for his glory we were made. So Lord, I'm not trying to make a deal with you to stay out of hell. I want you to be happy. And if you send me to hell at the end of it all, I'll serve you. Because I'm not making deals with you. I want you to be glorified in my life. And I want my nature changed. And I need you to free me so that you can be glorified in my life. I ask you in my heart, I confess with my mouth, I believe. And God, I need you to change the inner workings of who I am. I ask you to forgive me 
as I forgive everybody who's hurt me. I release them and I let them go and I leave them to you. Father, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.